Um, my name is Michael Knox. I am a student of Dr. Easter's at Missouri Baptist, and it's pleasure to be with you all this morning. I am an old kind of guy. I like to get in church and get out of church. Y'all have had some fun church, so let's go ahead and get to the word. Amen. If you'd grab your Bibles and go with me quickly to Psalm number 23. I promise not to preach anything awkward or different than you've heard from Dr. Easter before. Psalm 23, verse number 4 is where we'll spend our time for a little while. The New American Standard renders this Hebrew passage to say, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Won't you bow with me in a word of prayer? Our Father and our God, how we thank you for this truths with these your people. Won't you now hide me in your love and use me for your glory. Decrease me that they may see the light of your love shine even now. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. What's in the valley is our subject for this morning. Life brings us to mountaintop highs. Graduating high school is a mountaintop high. Graduating from college is a mountaintop high. Meeting your best friend and falling in love are things that you and I could agree are mountaintop highs. But just as there are mountaintop highs, there are valley lows. When you lose a loved one, you find yourself in the valley of despair. When you lose someone else, it seems that you are still sinking even deeper. The hardest reality that you and I have to deal with is that life is full of mountaintop experiences, but valley low depressions. And it all happens in the blink of an eye. At one moment, you're up. The next moment, you're down. One such moment that people had had this experience was April 3rd, 1968. At Mason Temple Church of God in Christ in Memphis, Tennessee, this meeting hosted a prolific voice in the civil rights movement. He went down to Memphis by way of Atlanta to stand in solidarity with black sanitation workers who were on strike. For a few months earlier, one of their co-workers had been killed by a malfunctioning truck. These people demanded that their union be recognized and that they would earn a decent wage. The keynote speaker for that evening arises and gives his final address this side of eternity. Dr. King stands to declare, I've been to the mountaintop and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. And that assurance, as one songwriter pins, that a change is going to come, moved these marginalized people of the deep south to feel as if they were now on the mountaintop. But the very next morning, they had to contend with the title of the New York Times headline saying that Martin Luther King is slain in Memphis. Some of the most beautiful and beloved passages in the Bible are found in the poetic sections of the Old Testament. Christians throughout the ages have turned to the Psalms, for example, for encouragement in difficult times. And their spirits have been lifted and their hearts refreshed by the colorful and powerful poetry of the Psalter. Believers have soared on the wings of eagles with Isaiah and have received the tragic, heartbreaking destruction of Jerusalem with Jeremiah. Indeed, the poetry of the Old Testament has a way of resonating within us. It can reach right down inside and vibrate within our souls, speaking to us quietly but powerfully. 
This phenomenon is universal regardless of age, education, or culture. Christians around the world cherish Old Testament poetry, especially the Psalms. And this, the 23rd Psalm, where we pause for our discourse, is the most known and loved of all the Psalms. It has been aptly called the pearl of the Psalms whose soft and pure radiance delights every eye. Psalm 23 is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, for the preacher and the new Christian know it alike. Psalm 23 is one of the first scriptures we're taught in Sunday school to memorize. It's often the sermon text at the funeral. It's read as comfort in the pastor's office for counseling, and it's the guest of honor at the wedding. In fact, Psalm 23 is so well known that some of y'all knew the entirety of the psalm before I'd even read verse 4. But this psalm is not the song that can be sung by everyone. It's not the party that anyone can attend, but it is the personal invita- it's the personal testimony of the believer. It is a psalm of trust. And Psalm 23 teaches a healthy dependence on God to produce a healthy independence from the world. Knowing this, Charles Allen in his work, God Psychiatry, writes, if people would repeat Psalm 23 seven times before they go to sleep each night, we would rarely see an emotional breakdown. Psalm 23 has been called the cure for anxiety of the idealized self. And this is a rising phenomenon amongst people thanks to social media. It's the concept of imagining what we should be, what we must be, what we ought to be in order to be acceptable to other people. The idealized self is the romanticizing of superhumanity. And when Psalm 23 opens, we're presented with God as our shepherd. John R.W. Stott informs the Christian cannot read or sing this song without thinking of Jesus Christ, who dared to reapply the metaphor from Jehovah to himself. John 10:11 records Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This isn't the only time we see this in the New Testament. Hebrews 13 calls Jesus the great shepherd. 1 Peter 5 calls him the chief shepherd. We know what scripture calls him, but is the Lord your shepherd? Do you have a relationship with the living God? And my personal testimony relates to that of Charles Spurgeon, who said, if he be a shepherd to none else, he is a shepherd to me. And when you find yourself in life's valleys, remember the one who is your shepherd offers his peace his presence, and his protection in the valley. Verse 4 is the shift in the narrative. David moves from talking to us about God to talking to God about God. And in the first three verses, we see that David says, God feeds us with himself, provides his spirit to quench our thirst, renew our soul, and guide our steps. Verse 4 pulls us from being in green pastures, receiving nourishment, and drinking from still waters, receiving refreshment, to now we are in the valley. I graduated high school class of 2016 in Channel View, Texas. Are there any football fans in the house or am I by myself? Good. I graduated with Mr. Jalen Hurts. If you've ever seen a Roll Tide game or a Boomer Sooner, you know who he is. And throughout high school, Jalen and I had some mutual friends and we'd hear our friends talk about this great place called the valley. Well, they were referencing the Rio Grande River Valley, which is situated right next to the U.S.-Mexico border. They'd share many of their families who'd lived there. They'd share stories about their time there. But the unique thing about this place, it's called the valley because it seems to sit lower than other parts in the great state of Texas. And that, my friends, is how life treats us. Sometimes we feel as if we're lower than those around us. 
there is some bad news about the valley, and that's just because you have faith in God. It does not mean that you will not enter life's valleys. Job testifies to this one saying, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Bad does not just happen to bad people. It happens to all people. And let me warn you before you look down on someone else because they're in the valley now. Today it's them. Tomorrow it could be you. There's only one man who lived without sin. His name is Jesus, son of the living God. But there's no man who lived without trouble. Hebrews 4 says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. I got three principles and I'll share them and take my seat. And first we see God's peace in the valley. Look at the text. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Verse 3 advises that God guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Then in verse 4, David says he's in the valley. Sometimes God leads us into dark and vulnerable places to clean out what should not be. And don't despise your valley moments, but investigate them. And even in the trouble of the valley, you can have peace. Sheep would occasionally follow their shepherd through some rough and scary terrain, but the sheep would continue because their shepherd was there and he was in control. And that's the way you and I need to be. No matter where life takes you, we can go because God is leading us. He is our good shepherd and he's in control. The text calls this place the valley of the shadow of death. One translation says it is the darkest valley. Another calls it the shadowiest of shadows. We have no reason to fear for the shadow is just a shadow. Matthew Henry advises, it is but the shadow of death. There is no substantial evil in it. The shadow of a serpent cannot sting, nor the shadow of a sword will kill. We can have peace in the midst of life's valleys, for there's nothing a shadow can do to harm you. Not only do we notice God's peace in the valley, but it's because of God's presence in the valley. David exclaims, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. The very presence of God is woven into the fabric of this psalm. His presence is shown in verses 1 through 3 as the shepherd who leads. It's shown in the intimate act of providing for his people in the midst of adversity in verse 5. In verse 6, he's shown as our remaining with him forever. But here in verse 4, his presence is shown in the midst of our darkest moments. And though we are in a place of ultimate risk where the darkness protects those who do evil and death casts its shadow, our fear is eclipsed by the presence of God. And that is the blessedness of the Christian life. We are never alone. That's the promise made clear to us in Hebrews 13 when the writer says, He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The closing of 2019 and the opening of this year saw one of these mass exoduses of college students flocking to Atlanta, Georgia. They converged on the Mercedes-Benz Stadium not to watch the NFC South's number two ranked Falcons defend their position, but to gather and to worship God. And some of these more than 65,000 people speculated if the composer of one of the newest albums called Jesus is King would be there to lead them in worship with his now famous Sunday service choir. Of course, Kanye West was not there. One attendee, in summarizing her thoughts, said Kanye didn't show, but Jesus did. And that's the guarantee we have in every moment of our lives. Kanye may never show up, but Jesus will. 
Your best friend, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your husband, your wife may leave you, but Jesus will not. Your mother and father may never come through, but Jesus will. Professors can be nowhere around, but Jesus will be right there with you. If you hear me say nothing else, all I want you to know is that God will never make you go through life alone. And that's the principle the hymn writer says when the hymn writer grabs when saying, I need thee every hour. Most gracious Lord, no tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide or life is vain. James Montgomery Boyce comments, we're never so conscious of the presence of God as when we pass through life's valleys. Indeed, there's some gathered here today who feel as if God has forsaken them in the valley. But those who have trust in God often find that he draws nearer to you in life's valleys. Verse 4 teaches that God provides peace through his presence in the valley. And lastly, we see God's protection in the valley. Can I show it to you? David, the shepherd boy turned sweet psalmist of Israel, says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Look at the objects that the shepherd carries. He has a rod and a staff. These are the basic tools of the shepherd, like a pen to the writer or a wrench to a mechanic. Traditional church teaching says that this was one item, but if you study it hard enough, you find out they're two separate tools. In one hand, the shepherd has a rod, and in the other, he has his staff. The rod is like the billy club the cops carried in the 70s. In the 80s, the rod was used to protect from external dangers. The shepherd would use his rod to beat off the natural enemies of the sheep. He'd use his rod to handle anything that seeks to disrupt his flock. And that's even true of our shepherd where Psalm 121 says the Lord will protect you from all evil. But not only is there the protection of the rod, but there's the protection of the staff. The rod protects us from stuff around us, but the staff protects us from stuff within us. Sheep are dumb animals. Let's be honest, there are some dumb folks. They just wander, just to wander. Isaiah 53 likens us to sheep when saying, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The staff has a crook on it. If needed, the shepherd would hook onto the sheep's head to readjust its view so it doesn't wander where it does not need to go. And that's what God does for us. He doesn't just protect us from what's around us, but he protects us from ourselves. And that ought to be the prayer of every Christian. Lord, protect me from me. David advises that he's in the valley, but he's not afraid because his shepherd is there and his protection comforts him. David, I told you, opens the psalm with showing us that he has a personal relationship with God who provides for the physical and spiritual needs of his people. He shows that it's on the basis of God's reputation that he leads us to fulfill his will. Literally, God cannot lead us wrong because his name is on the line. And here in verse 4, David changes our perspective of the valley, but the story shifts again. In verses 1 through 3, David talked to us about God. In verse 4, David talks to God about God. But in verse 5, David begins to talk to us about God preparing a table in the presence of his haters. And that ought to make any Christian happy. You'll eat in front of folks who thought you were never going to make it, who prayed for your downfall. You'll eat in front of people who prayed on your downfall. 
The text says that God anoints his head with oil. God literally pours out his blessing on him. God will continually pour out his blessing on our lives. Notice David says, my cup overflows. And that's the promise God gives. He pours out his blessing in our life. He doesn't stop when the cup fills, but he pours it out over and over and over and over and over again. David finishes his psalm of trust by showing a promise. Verse 6 closes the psalm by declaring God's faithfulness through every day and throughout eternity. You can count on God daily. And everything in life may fail, but God won't. Asaph says, my flesh and the heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. David, knowing this deal, says that goodness and mercy are twin attributes of God. Spurgeon calls them God's footmen that follow God's children every day. Goodness on its own is not enough. Goodness guards the steps while mercy guards the stumble. You need goodness to help you stay on your feet and walk in the will of God, but you need mercy to grab you when you've fallen down. You can count on mercy and goodness lasting throughout your life and even beyond your life. The text says, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And this closing statement of the psalm shows us that when the Lord embraces you, he will never change his mind about you. The original language suggests that David will remain in God's presence for the length of days, which literally means all of his natural life. But a proper reading of the Old Testament is done through the lens of the New Testament. And that causes us to know something about mercy. And if I could, can I just share it with you real quickly? Mercy is the the one that stepped from eternity into time, stepped from royalty into poverty, stepped from glory to the womb of a teenage mother, stepped into Bethlehem, was reared in Nazareth. Mercy taught the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple. Mercy was marched up the Via Della Rosa and mercy died on Calvary's mountain. Mercy rose their third day morning with all power in his hand, and it's because of goodness and mercy that we know we can make it through life's valleys. Won't you bow with me in a word of prayer? God, we thank you for your preached word and these people that you have allowed us to share with. Now, God, we ask that as you move through this period of our lives, when we enter life's valleys, won't you be just as faithful, and won't you help us to be as faithful to you as we were on the mountaintops? God, we ask a special prayer over these people who've sat and endured this little preacher who are now soon to merge with another church. Our Father and our God, won't you now keep us every step of the way and remind us that even in the valley, we are not alone. Remind us there is no shadow, there is no valley where you won't find us. And for that, God, we have no reason to fear. God, we thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Can we praise God for that today? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So everybody stand with me.